0: You did something and you just held the door open and everyone is running through it now. It's kind of like no one, sometimes you feel like no one's looking back to say, hey, but at least this person, you know, held the door open.
1: Welcome to Third Culture Africans, the lifestyle podcast for dreamers, thinkers, and doers. We celebrate artistry, share stories from those brave enough to create something and succeed, Listen to diverse perspectives on African success and those shifting the needle on culture. I'm Zeza Ariake-Sao, your host. On this week's episode of Third Culture Africans, we have Arietta Muje, a fashion powerhouse, who discovered her career in creativity purely by serendipity. She has the power to turn anything into a sensation. Incredibly modest. I hope you enjoy this episode as I did sitting with Arietta to talk about her beautiful career in the fashion industry. Well, thank you so much, Arietta, for joining us on this week's episode of Third Culture Africans. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. We're having a little chinwag before I hit record. And I was saying I felt like the world needed to know a lot about the work that you've done and your role, not just shifting culture for our community, the African community, but shifting culture in general in fashion. And seldomly do we get to celebrate the people behind the scenes and the people who have made a lot of things possible. So I've written Fashion Chameleon, Stylist PR, Merchandiser, Marketing Branding, Communications, and in capitals, PR Specialist.
0: <laughs> I sound like a flipping jack-of-all-trades master of none. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, I think you are the embodiment of fashion, right? You have a, a definite passion for fashion and a, a huge appreciation of beauty. I remember the first time, I want to say the first time I met you, goodness, I was probably in sixth form. You were styling a lot. Yes. Then, and we have mutual friends in common. But at the time I hadn't met you because you were you were older and you guys were, I guess, the first group of people that I had met of African descent and were African and still identified as being African, but somehow had assimilated into the world in London, but were sort of fusing both cultures in a beautiful way and achieving things. So I think you guys, it was like Z with her fashion label and then um, Valerie modeling and then you were doing the styling and there were fashion shows. And for the first time for me, that was the first representation that I had seen of people in our community doing alternative things if that made sense and succeeding at it i
0: just want to say when you were 16 i was like 17 years so you can stop saying the school girl <laughs> <laughs> but
1: it's a huge gap it's a huge gap then right like to be fair it's a huge yeah, gap oh <laughs> um
0: yeah it is funny to say that because we um I, i've always um Seen myself as somewhat different. And I think that the people I surrounded myself with in in London growing up were that, because we were never like, even though we were like Nigerian, you know, went to school in Nigeria, but we were born in England and we came back to England. So in Nigeria, you were not Nigerian enough. I used to be called London girl. Me and my brother were bullied so badly. <laughs> the beginning of the school in Nigeria because somebody asked, "Ajebu." Hey, my God, primary school. Somebody asked me, "Where are you from?" I said, "London." They started singing "London Boy" and "London Girl" for me and my brother on the school boss. Oh my God, cute Estelle's uh, American <laughs> boy. Yeah, I was like, "Would you be my London girl?" Or something. Anyway, and yeah. my brother and I, we 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 were conscious that you know, going back to Nigeria. We were not Nigerian enough. And then coming back to England for school, like everyone kind of did. Like you come back to England when you flinch your manners, come back mm. and, and go to college. And then I remember this teacher telling me at, at college, at Williams College back in the day, that I was on the class, Like coming over from Africa to go to school, I was underclass. And I was like, yo. I think that was a harsh reality for, for, for me. I will never forget that woman, Daniel Browning. In fact, I don't even know if she's still life <laughs> the like, name outside my bad mind. I do. She, exactly <laughs> with me. she called me on class. And it was so funny also as well, because we grew up at a time in the in the nineties, late nineties and early 90s, where every African person you wanted to be Jamaican. It was better for yeah people. Yeah. So all on some bad man, food. a bad man. <laughs> ah, bad guy. Woodman
1: flex. That's what we were on. Yeah. This podcast is sponsored by Malay Natural Science. Malay's products are inspired by the rich landscapes, alluring scents, and ancient wisdom of Africa. Their luxurious fragrance and body care range balances 100% natural active ingredients and scientifically proven formulas to heal, protect, and pamper your skin. Malay ships worldwide and you can buy their products at M-A-L-E-E-Online.com. They also offer a free sample if you'd like to try. I remember being an ethnic minority and even being more of a minority than anyone from the Caribbean. 100%. And it was almost you your, your level of blackness was questionable because you were African and you were this alien from somewhere else
0: I'm, i look like all these kids nowadays celebrating the africanness i, I know like, I'm, 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 I'm jealous i'm like i just put my hair down to be like
1: my girl Dio. yes <laughs> <laughs> no, because their hair their hair they could get those um what the baby hairs to lay in a particular way <laughs> um have to ask my friend oh, what do you what do you
0: use on your hair I had to quote that line from Coming to America. Do you use like fruits and
1: berries or something? And she was like, yeah, My hair's not playing down. That's pre um hair forums and learning about four C and 4B and, and all the four hair four hair types. People just may do whatever they had in pack in Finchley and uh, Finsbury Park.
0: <laughs> yeah. Packs, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or Yinka stores in Peckham. But you know, that yeah. a, a, a time ago, and it was really Okay, I had this mentor at the time. It was this guy called Wale Adeyemi. And I'd seen this guy. I heard his name. I'd seen him dress in Victoria Beckham. I mean, he's one of my good friends still to this day. And I spoke to him this morning. And he had a successful brand. Like, he had a brand called Beardline. Uh, oh, sorry, Wale Adeyemi. And I was seeing this name and knowing this is a Nigerian person like me. How is this guy doing it? At the time, there was also another guy who had a brand called Aerosol. His name was Lake. And Names were like Nigerian names. So I, I used to try to go find these people. And um basically it started from there. I remember meeting Wally Adeyemi, and he looked like me, sounded a bit British, like I did. But when you asked him his name, I did Wale like, it, like like nice. And I was like, okay, that's fine. What's your name? Arieta Mujay. Like I'd say yeah. my name like yeah. and um I, was, I remember seeing Wally, and Wally was dressing Victoria Beckham that time when Victoria Beckham had that solo career, and we see the jacket everywhere. And he just said to me, you know what, you just have to be yourself. And at this point, I was thinking, what does that mean, you know? I can't Shout be- out to the pioneers, by the way. Shout out to the pioneers, because, you know, people don't even know what these people put, the ground what they put down. But I also remember, like, in the early 90s, like, um, when Jazzy B from Soul to Soul Coined this whole thing about one race for one about being black British. We talked about one us being one and stuff like that. I remember when Soul to Soul came out, that was about the first time I actually felt connected to being black in, in, in the UK. And we could be anything. You know, if you look at those soul-to-soul videos, they were all like made with all, all of their friends and stuff. And Wally and Trevor Nelson, they kind of came from that. And hanging out in Tottenham Court Road at the Soul to Soul store where Trevor Nelson would DJ in the 90s. That just helped me realize that,
1: you know, I can actually try and be myself, put some flavor in myself. But I think the challenge with that generation was that it was almost, I guess, society at the time made it feel like it was only one through the door. Yeah. Right. There could only be one of them. But the it
0: was like that. It, it, it was like that very much so. I mean, I'd meet like people and I was saying this um on my Instagram live the other day that there were a few, there were very few black stylists, but not everyone was welcoming. I'd meet some people and it was almost as if immediately they saw you in the same space as them. They were, but it had their back up, like you were comfortable their work or their market or
1: something your early career though we've kind of dived straight into your styling career or the styling part of your career but you started off as a true um african child studying business law yes and then you did another degree just because one is not enough Yeah, uh, <laughs> in, in in business marketing yeah. and yeah. so always an interest in business but i i, I guess that takes you from that to then interning a lot. So you did a, a ton of interning and then you're working with people like Pixie Lott, Tyson Beckford, Leah Kadebe, Kalise, Lily Allen, Kelly Rowland, Naomi Campbell. Um, if anyone can take a snapshot of the 2000s, you'll know that every name I've mentioned was at their absolute peak in that timeframe. And you were working with them. How, how do you get from a two-degree business law, business marketing, to interning and then to Arietta Mujer, the the
0: stylist, the stylist, you know? It's quite simple. So um, when I left university, originally I went to Brighton University and came out with my business law, business marketing uh, degree. Because I basically I take a few steps backward when I first came to England. I thought I had to do A-levels because that's what everyone was saying to me. When you came back to England, you have to do your A-levels. Without your A-levels, you can't go to university. A-levels were so hard, man. I did my best with my A-levels and I only got in for a business course. So when I got into university for a business course, I was first of all in London Guildhall. I knew I wanted to change and life, So I, I specialized in business law. And then when I went to university in Brighton, I could specialize in business marketing because it seemed more fruitful. The truth was that I couldn't be a lawyer and that was what I told my parents I was gonna be because my mom was a lawyer. I thought at least let me just do half. That's still something rather than none. But you know, and I realized how much you had to pay to go through law school to become a barrister, because I didn't want to be a solicitor. I didn't want to sit down in an office. I wanna be in court, cool. I wanna wear the wigs and stuff like that. My mom was a barrister. I realized that you spend so much more money in becoming that and the chances of you becoming that as a black woman were very slim anyway. If you didn't go to like a proper university, like I said, I got into London Guildhall. That wasn't like a proper university. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. And when I realised that, I thought, okay, I'm going to go to Brighton and make the best out of it. So this all started when I was in Brighton University. So getting to Brighton University, I was placed in the halls of residence where all the art students um, stayed. Uh, not the business students, and I was kind of lucky because I came quite late. And where all the business students stayed, it was quite nice. Um, Everybody was doing, we were mostly like African kids and stuff like that, but where the art International students, students, yeah. International, and these kids used to party like it was 1999, before it was (laughs) 1999. But here's the thing. When I'd left university in um, London, I was already, I only had one more year to do in Brighton, so... When I got to the halls of residence, I was made the hall, like a hall monitor. So I used to go in and just make sure the people in my halls were doing okay. And these were all art students, so I met a variety of people. I met a bunch of, like, international, talented people that kind of changed my life for forever. I realized that, you know, that actually, to be creative, this thing which, um you know, African parents used to suppress, people made money out of it. And so I'm talking right from early on, I'd always like made mood boards. I'd tear up my mom's magazines and stick them like on the walls, tear up like her, um, you know, like when you used to go to the Taylor's Place back yeah. in Nigeria, you have all these pictures on the wall. I yeah, like that a lot. And um, when I went to University of Brighton, I noticed these kids were doing similar. So I used to sit down. There was a girl in my halls of residence with all the art students stayed and she was in her final year. And and true story, her name was Henrietta. Henrietta had asked me if I would style her final year collection and I didn't know what the hell she was talking about. I was like, what do you mean style? Well, you are always very stylish yourself, right? Thing. This is what she said. She says, Well I like how you look, you put things together really nicely. So would you do this for me? So uh, I dano the carry last now. I just said, Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> For well, what I had to do, I, I was actually go to research what
1: a stylist did. And at the time, it wasn't a particularly clear career path. No, like, no. I, I don't no, think he knew you I, I of stylists.
0: I thought this was a bit of fun. So I uh, I remember very well going to uh, the, the lanes in Brighton, you know, in Brighton, with the second-hand stores, and just talking to, and even then, you really didn't get people who were styling you in the fitting room, because back in the day, I know a feature room, just an open space. You change here, you change here, and stuff like that. And so I used to go to feature rooms with dread because I never liked changing in front of people. And I went to this um, store, this vintage store in the lanes, and I met this really lovely girl who was always, I was going into the feature room she offered. If you wore this with that, that would look nice and stuff like that. So I then began to have a picture of what styling was. So did the collection, fast forward, left university, got to London, and I thought, I don't want to be a lawyer. I don't want to be anything like that. So I don't know what I'm going to do. And before I came home, you know, like when you're at university and your final year student, you get all these people coming to try and persuade you to get a career in this or a career in that. It was, I think, I don't know what it's called. It's like, it's, not, it's the opposite of Freshers Week. It's something when you're leaving, when the, the careers people come in. And I remember at the time, I wasn't interested in talking to nobody. The only people I spoke to were the bank because they had a super soaker as their giveaway present. So I went to Backy's back because they were giving away this nice present when you spoke to them.
1: Oh yeah, I remember that. And then they'll try and sell you credit cards as well. Yeah, they did, the bastards. That's another story anyway. <laughs> <too well. laughs> um, like they'll give you like phone credit or something if you take out it. yeah, oh God, it was bad. They gave me phone card. Phone card didn't even last long, but that credit card debt it
0: lasted a long time, didn't it? It lasted
1: a long time, yeah. Like when you think back now, like I think I had a credit card and it was like 350 pounds, and that was a lot of money yeah what did I do to go top shop what did I use it for like literally (laughs) all I did go top shop
0: in documents there was not even like top (laughs) it was like in documents like (laughs) I digress and um I um yeah came back to London and literally I was like not feeling going to look for work and uh, at the time I had these friends from universities as well um Wale Davis and a guy called I can never remember Loomski's real name, but they're rappers. They're called um, Show Them Crew in Nigeria.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Then they were called Loose Cannons. And they were like, oh, they got this gig. Do you want to, like, can you give us, like, get some clothes for us or whatever, whatever? So i do that. i will go get some clothes. These people, they look nice, blah, blah, blah. I'll be Wale. Because Wale was still at university in Brighton when I had left, because I was a year above him. But, and Wale's brother, Akin, Akin, Akin was a skater kid when I was in university. Film director now, makes all these amazing films and stuff like that now. And I used to think, we we, we were different. We were all like, different. we used to live that life in that Pharrell's Fronting video. That's the life. Going back to London now, I'm like, man, I, I don't want to go to work in an office. Yeah. My uh, younger sister, she was doing her A-level, so she was at home. Had got a part-time job. And she'd gone to um, this induction for this new job at a flagship store in London. So do you remember when New Look had that big flagship store in Marble Arch? Yes.
1: It was
0: like space. It was like the big yes. store ever. My sister was a job as a supervisor. This is my younger sister as a supervisor. Oh, wow. And I thought, and this was while I was at home pretending to be an heir now for a record company, trying to call <laughs> to see if they'd like want to listen to like Luke Cannon's music and stuff like that. And I went to go see my sister at, at work one day. And yeah. And the manager pulled me aside. She said, I like how you look. Do you want a job? It was that. And I said, Yeah. So this happened on Tuesday, and I started working on the Saturday. Saturday in the fitting rooms, right? that was my first job after university in the fitting rooms at New York. And um, I remember being in the fitting rooms and just using the opportunity to be quite helpful because I always pride myself uh, in throughout university. I worked in gap. So I knew a lot about customer service. You, you know, you'd be polite, you help people, you try and help people. And I did that. And then I did it for two months or three months. Then there was a vacancy to join the visual merchandising team, and I kind of got it. I don't really remember how because I didn't. I don't remember really applying for it, but I got the job. Maybe because I used to help the VM team anyway. So there's something about you being in the place and just doing your best, you know. Like it says in the Bible, if you're doing a job, do like I say, if you're doing it for God type thing. And at that time, I didn't really know about this stuff. I just work because did it work. yeah yeah
1: yeah and I think there was something about being an immigrant in that setting yes that you knew that you had to be you had to be exceptional in anything that you did because 100%. you like hundred percent it just whether like I, I, I got headhunted from faith shoes yeah to be one of the first cashiers for aldo shoes when they came to the UK and I felt really good about myself because I was earning seven pound twenty an hour mm-hmm, then. Girl, your mates were three pound sixty. That was double. That was fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> and but I think there was just this mindset of, and it wasn't like you were clearly fixated on the money, but it was all an experience because for the first time you're being open to a world yeah. that you never had access to. I know some of my friends who came from more sort of wealthier families always used to go, oh my God, I can't believe you're working or how are you working and how are you studying? Because it was hard studying and working it was really hard but we kind of did it anyway and yeah and then they'll be like oh my god you get all that discount but there was a part of it i discount, think but they won't be there when you're waking up early to go to work oh my god ah uh, but even just the hassle of that discount you hide the things in the stock room till it <laughs> went down You should be show, showing up when they should show up like seriously
0: you'll <laughs> you be sweating when your friend closes in the store, you're not be trying to cut eye. Go out, go out. <laughs> go out. <laughs> uh, my worst was doing the sample sale. Everybody would just appear from nowhere. But but anyway, from there, I kind of got the job in the visual merchandising team. And the rest, they say, it was history, really. Because it's from there, I got to go around to all the stores and all the new store openings. I was traveling around the country. Even got to go into to do the windows of uh, the visual merchandiser for... Um, New look.
1: And so then your, your styling career starts. Yeah. But through this, yeah. you've interned in the past. So yeah. So you've done smash hits, if anyone remembers yeah. what smash hits is. You've done smash hits, you've done red. It's true, this visual merchandising,
0: so I'll, so I'll tell you the story. So in continuation, as the visual merchandiser, uh, window dresser for the flagship store, you'd get in early. So I used to do seven o'clock in the morning till 3 p.m. every day. And you get into the store and that's the stylists who came to pull clothes for magazines and stuff would come in early because they didn't want to be in the store when the stores were too full of people. So they'd come in and pull clothes for their photo shoots, right? And so they'd come in, pull clothes for their photo shoots and stuff. And I met this lady called Didi Danso. Didi Danso was the fashion editor the Daily Mirror at the time. Lovely Ghanaian lady. Like, I'd never seen anyone as beautiful as her. I mean, she's 53 years old and she looks she looks like, oh my God, she looks like she's 17. And uh, I remember her coming in all the time and I just went up to speak to her and ask her, what is it that you do? And then she told me, and this woman allowed me to assist her every weekend. So she was doing stuff with Pride magazine, doing some freelance stuff. At the time, she and her ex-husband owned a studio, so it was quite easy for us to like do stuff at the weekend. So she would get the clothes, I would have to go and return the clothes on Monday. So I'm going to work at 7 o'clock in the morning with a big suitcase in my hand. I have to leave the suitcase downstairs with security because I wasn't allowed to bring it in the building because, of you know, they want to make sure I wasn't stealing. Yeah, although I wouldn't be stealing the suitcase, the other places. Yeah, but, but the hustle, like just the hustle of that lifestyle, right? Yeah, the hustle, and I've got to return stuff. And then from assisting her, I started to grow and talk to more stylists in the shop when they came in. And then I met a lady called Ruby Warrington, who was the editor of Smash Hits magazine. And she let me come uh, a day, two days a week to do returns. And returns was that to sort out all the stuff in the cupboard and send it back. So I'd work from 7 to 3, and then I'd go to Smash Hits from 3.30, because it was down the road. EMAP was like Boxer Street down the road, from 3.30 to 7 in the evening, clearing out the The, the returns
1: closet, yeah. And
0: then, of course, opportunities then came in, in, in there. Like, I remember... Henry Holland, the designer, was one of the interns also as well. And I remember the first shoot we both assisted uh, Ruby on was Kel- Kelly Kelly Osborne was on the cover of Smash It's magazine because she had that song. Shut up! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then I thought I'd named it. I was so excited yeah. to be there, running see, around. CV see point like, highlights, right? Like, literally. It still is a highlight. Because I, I was watching the Osbournes at that time. Kelly was like... Yeah. I think well
1: they were huge then right
0: they were huge I haven't seen seen the back of Sharon I could have fainted at that time (laughs) um, yeah and literally that was it and that smash hits and can you imagine all the people they had on the covers of smash hits back in the day and I would go with the assistant sorry with the stylist and her assistant for a shoot it was crazy I was seeing like the girl from All Saints that I'd be in my head I was number five I was the fifth member of All Saints (laughs) Never ever. Exactly. And then get into actually they wouldn't like a sample, then they'll let you keep it. I remember like the Maharishi pants. I'm talking yeah. about these pants that everybody wanted with the dragon down the side. Yeah, the bootleg I was wearing or, or original. Original, yeah, with the with the embroidery <laughs> and everything. And that's how things kind of started. So from there, you start to develop your own contacts, and you know, like I, I talked about being assisted uh, working with Henry Holland, who then became this massive designer himself. Okay, mm. and getting to go and work on his shows, get, get an invitation to go to his show. Now, after a while, no longer working, go to show. Then at New Look, my, my career kind of moved from window dresser. To I worked for the press department because the two press girls noticed I was always working with stylists and stuff. And the, the two girls actually wanted to leave at the same time. So there were two press officers at New Look and they had an agency. And the two girls resigned at the same time, I think was a bit of a cool thing they were doing. So they needed to find people quickly. And it was like, well, the girl downstairs always helps us doing and it'd be like a transition because the stylists. there was a time when they would just leave the stuff with me they wouldn't even go to the press office so I got the job and then I uh, also they hired a girl called Catherine Reynolds who's one of my best friends in this life she just come back from Spain this crazy girl from Liverpool who was just like <laughs> a, 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 as much as a hard worker as me but she was a bit slick with it in that I was still giving them African hard work. She was giving them smarter hard work, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So that's literally how the stylist career... then. And, and then first, you go from, from that to PR, and then
1: you end up at River Island. Yeah.
0: So from uh, New Look, I moved my way up from being a press office uh, to the PR manager. I did five years at New Look Retailers, and this is when New Look was changing from Stackham High, to them cheap. I'm talking about we did a collaboration with Lily Allen at the time, and during Vogue Fashion Night Out, they'd have a show in store. So I got to work with, like, a few models before they even blew. So Agnes Dane, for example. When I met Agnes, I knew was Dora Hollins, and she was Henry Hollands' best friend, mm. you know. Yeah. And, and there was, yeah, the people's careers were just growing side by side. There was Sonia Wanda, this uh, African girl from uh, Denmark who was also making a name for herself at the time. And, of course, this was the time when, you know, you know the Pixie Gildas, May Machine Rest In Peace, the Daisy Lowe. Those kids were coming to the forefront as being, you know, the party kids. So every event we did, it was important to have those kids there.
1: So then you, so like,
0: you're now in charge
1: of the guest list
0: as well. So yeah, basically. PR is
1: is yeah. is working. The guest list it needs to know who's who's who that we needs do. to be yeah, there because you need to make those columns right. Like then it was yeah, all yeah, magazines.
0: Yeah. There were no blogs. Yeah. You're liaising with the press and people are becoming a little bit nicer to you. The, inv- the invitations come in your mailbox, you know, people who want you to come on board their events and sponsor their events will start to treat you, or should I say the position, because you always realize when you leave a job, it's not about choosing the position, really. Yeah, which and, is true.
1: Um, which is
0: true. Yeah, the invitations will come loads. Mm. I think you must remember, like, when Faith um, kind of, like, um, had this big shoe launch. Mm. And they had parties in store.
1: Yeah. Everybody wanted to be your friend, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You needed that discount, yeah. that discount. <laughs> yeah. yeah, And so
0: that's kind of how the PR and the styling grew. So PR by the day and in the evening and then styling yeah. alongside that.
1: So then you go from New Look to River Island and then you get perhaps one of the biggest and most impactful brand partnerships in fashion in the UK you do Rihanna's first ever fashion brand partnership with River Island. So this is pre-Puma, pre-anything we've seen from Rihanna since. Yeah,
0: um, pre-Fancy, long, long pre-frenzy,
1: time. But, but I think that launch with River Island was so pivotal for the UK fashion scene anyway. yeah. How yeah. do you get to, one, picking Rihanna at the time and having the vision to see that she was her face on anything would blow because as an artist she was successful but she wasn't Beyonce yeah but this is the thing and okay so I'll take it back so I
0: was actually doing my sabbatical around Africa as head of PR for River Island uh, slash communications I took a month of work and because I've been starting like fashion shows for like Diola Sego. And working on the business of fashion in Africa, every catwalk uh, thing that was arise, I was one of the first stylists to work Mercedes on the arise Benz, yeah. The same thing. so I was yeah. here, there, and, and everywhere. Like I take my holiday. It's not like it's not like I was giving time off. I take holiday and I do that. And I I remember I took a month off to travel around Africa because I've been passionate about that industry for a while. And uh, I was on holiday, and I got a text from a, from my my old, my old boss to say, "When are you coming back?" I'm like. You know when I'm coming back? It's in the calendar type of thing. She goes, "Can you call me uh, when you get a chance?" In my mind, I was like, "What the fuck's happened now?" All people, you know, I'm on sabbatical. And it was like, um, "Okay, we know you're back next Thursday, but when do you actually get back into England?" In my mind, I was like, "Question. What is, why are you people asking yeah. me all these questions? Yeah. Like, like." This. And I said, "Okay, I get back actually in England to England." on the monday she goes can you come in on tuesday and i'm like why do i have to come in on tuesday i'm
1: not due to be back yet
0: no so i'm just like anyway i'm gonna take another week off whatever i'll come in for your meeting on tuesday whatever so we're getting on tuesday and uh the meeting was with me it was a small team of people who a small team of seniors you know the head of design the owner of river islands wife, um vanessa lewis my boss the head of design for River Islands, a lady called Naomi Dominique. And I can tell you this, she is responsible for the looks on the high street. Like everybody else, like these brands come in and serving looks, they, they learn from Naomi Dominique. So I was sat in the room with these people and Vanessa Lewis just pops out, what do you think of Rihanna? And in my mind, it was just like, this is a trick question because I was never on, how do I say? I, I've always liked them with a little bit of rough. And I thought you know, it was always too clean for me. I mean, I love B, don't get it twisted. I love B, but but Rihanna spoke to me. And this time I just been really This was
1: the- him, Mr. DJ Pond, the replay,
0: right? Yeah, but it was even shut up and drive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that era. And I remember yeah. thinking to myself, what do you mean? I'm like, hey, like, I love Rihanna. So I started explaining to them the difference between, you know, Rihanna and, and what sh- what I feel um a, a beneficial. Not that I was playing one against the other, but I felt like. Um, but why she fit talk, the random bit? If Top had Kate Moss, then you need somebody who is like a bit of that and then more.
1: Type. Oh my goodness, I forgot about that.
0: Yeah. I mean, well, you need someone who's a bit of that will create the headlines for you, who will have some sort of personality about it, because and I had this saying with Zig, where other zag. They were not necessarily going to be like everybody else. So I sit down, have a meeting. I talked to him about Rihanna. And funny thing was that I, of course, I would listened to her a lot. And I had this uh, my screenshots at the savers at the time, where was like, different Rihanna look. So I was like, well, here she looks like this. She can appeal to this, that, and the other. And then at the end of the meeting, the boss just turned around and said to me, "I met her mom in Barbados for the week, and I think we might be doing a collection with her." My mouth just opened like what? So. Then I got to sign this a disclaimer before I leave the room. By the way, for, I forgot to mention because I wasn't allowed to, about this conversation with anybody else. So I had to sign a disclaimer, and then um, from there it just kind of just carried on from there. Every meeting about the brand, so I'd be it would be me and this small group of people and Rihanna and people from Rock Nation in the room with Rihanna going through the collection. And what was really good for me was something I would always loved her for, even though I feel like. Um, I still feel like this thing happened to somebody else and not happened to me. We'd be in the room and she would always ask what I thought. It was always like, what do you think? What would you, would you wear it type of thing? And I realized that I was probably the only black person in the room, that's why. The only black person from the other side of the table, if you know what I mean. Yeah,
1: but real recognises real, right?
0: Yeah, so... I really appreciated that. That she always, I remember her saying to me, she liked my hair. And then in the papers, two weeks later, I saw her with a gray weave. I was like, mm-hmm. with the
1: same haircut.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. We know where you got that from, girl. Yeah. Um, this history, I can remember so much, like taking samples to around the world to go and show her yes, no, and her stylist, Adam Selman, who was so, so good to me. She worked with her, sorry, Adam Selman was her costumer, and Mel Ottenberg. Mel Ottenberg is this amazing stylist from New York. They're like, the two of them were just such a dream team, and I just remember them giving me pointers and tips on different bits and pieces, and that also just helped me in whatever campaigns I got to style for small brands or African brands, or whatever. Just listening to their tips and advice,
1: and, and that- so then then there's seven seven tour, but yeah. then this then thrusts you into a space where you see the potential in the industry. Yes. And you're now trying to inject what you know back into the African community.
0: Yes. I mean, this, and this is have to go on the 777 mm. tour, I would say this. For at River Island as well, I worked in graduate fashion week. So I was styling uh, in for a shoot. So I got my, my older cousin friend, Chalia Shigaya. She lived in New York at the time, and I was talking to her about it. And she said, why don't we reach out to a few of these African designers and see if they will lend you samples? And the only person that came back to us was Lisa Folawio.
1: So yeah. the person
0: that was wearing a Lisa short shirt on the cover of the Evening Standard was Khaleesi. And that was my work by my Charlie Ashigaya. And that also kind of helped me in terms of brands back home. Because when I emailed them, they would respond. You know what mm. I mean? Yeah,
1: That's- because they, this is, I think you were, you, you broke, Again, you know, without saying who our next guests will be in the show, but I think um, you've broken a lot of African fashion designers on a global scale.
0: Yeah, in a way, because remember that time your you girl, Zadi too, and I were quite close. Every other time, Khalees is coming, what's Khalees going to wear, get some samples. That I was making clothes 24-7 every time for, 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 <laughs> for Khalees, because that was an opportunity, you know, at the time yeah. to get yeah. stuff on them. So even when I was about to go on tour, I took some merchandise from a few brands who sent me stuff to give to Rihanna. She was wearing a lot of Wale Demi beanies at the time as well, so that was kind of cool to be able to help Wale to give back to someone who's always had time for me. Yeah. And yeah. but you know, It was more about River Island so I couldn't really be seen to be doing too much so it was always too hard much, to yeah. kind of struggle. Yeah, one paid my bills, the, the other wasn't, so I had to try my
1: best to uh, they'll as good as, as well as I could but then you made a lot of early predictions as much as you fostered the industry on the African continent right so all the fashion weeks you were a part of but at the same time you made a lot of early predictions for the African fashion scene that we're seeing today in know um, why? and like I said I've,
0: I've just been blessed like that because Orange Culture, Adebayo was my was an assistant on the Arise show and he told me he was going to be a designer. Boo I am Seagull, the same thing. They told me they were going to be designers and stuff. And the first time I saw Adebayo's collection and it was androgynous and knowing him and knowing his journey, he spoke to me. And I was like, that I have to, to help him way I can. That was the goal, to just try and help him, you know. And, and in a
1: mentoring school. capacity, you did, right?
0: In some ways, yes, I would like to say that, but, you
1: know, I don't believe that I necessarily did it all by by, by myself. No, well, not by yourself. But I think you can. You know, sometimes they say your work has branches. Yeah. Um, it takes root somewhere, but those branches I- extend far and and wide. And I think your work has always done that across across cultures and across across industries. You know, you did stuff with British Fashion Council, British Fashion Awards. Yes. And it's funny you say that because even during those times, it was really hard for
0: me to gauge because, again, now I'm going back to Africa where I didn't necessarily feel accepted per se. You know, in Nigeria, if you don't look a certain way, how can she work in fact? you see me walking around with my torn shorts. You, you say hello to my assistant and say hello to me
1: type, type thing because I don't look And i never been I- like that. It was very. It was a different time because you, it was, it at was. the time the people in the fashion scene in Africa were affluent, right? Yeah, they, they were affluent. affluent. They looked a certain way. And if you didn't look like, oh,
0: you didn't live on the island with them, it was a bit like... And I was like, I don't know, Maine is all one shit shithole. What do I care anyway? <laughs> but Yola Sego was always good for me. And so she took me on as a personal stylist. I went around South Africa with her. And she was the designer
1: of the moment, you know. She was. I, I remember when you guys came, because I worked on the the first Arise they did in South Africa, the sculpture, yeah, yes. yes. the project for the, for the sculptures. Um, yes. And then yes. I got a friend of mine, um, Kukwa, from Joe's Perspectives, to cast them in Ghana. And I remember you coming to South Africa in that trip. And we didn't really get a lot of time because you were so busy that trip yeah um, yeah and then now moving forward and still doing that, but then there's African creative collective, yes, that's born, yeah, and the idea of that almost felt like it was premature at the time. Would you yes. say that? Yes,
0: or? very much so. Like it feels like in a way. This is where I struggle with myself, if you don't mind me saying. I can only be real and, and tell my story as real as I possibly can. This is where I struggle because I've always felt like I was always like one or two steps ahead. And by the time the world's caught up, I've run out of steam. Because it's an island and most of these things you're doing by yourself. So I start this agency to look after African talent and nurture African talent. And to make it accessible. Yeah, to make it I, possible, I mean, I got my friend Chichia London's collection in collaboration
1: with ASOS. Mm. You know, no one had done a collaboration with Again, the retailer. No one knows this, by the way. Again, another person you break into mainstream.
0: Yeah, and and not to say that the brand wasn't doing it direct to consumer thing, but it really broke mainstream and you know, Beyonce was where it was when stopped from uh, Chichia London getting stuff of Solange, it was quite it was quite an interesting time because also there was an awakening in, in, in America slowly but surely most of the the black people in America as celebrities were feeling a little bit of the African self
1: you know so yeah that was, I think that, that it was the starting of the consciousness for them to yeah. say hey there is I guess the motherland and and also, we were starting to create things that were different. And, yes. and I guess a lot of celebrities want to be different, right? Yeah.
0: I mean, it's not even just like uh, internationally. Mm. Trevor Storman's first big gig, in, you know, invited him to come to like Fashion Week in South Africa. That was me who did that. I was shooting a client of mine called Joshua Nicole. And I thought, you know what? I met this boy and I think he's going to be amazing as a photographer. I met Trevor Storman when he was about 17 or 18 you know, their hot moments, <laughs> you know, and I thought, yeah. okay, I'm going to invite him down. I also invited this girl called um, Gatash Fro from Botswana down. You'll be the influencer and you will be the photographer to shoot my uh, friend Joshua Nicole's campaign.
1: And they did they, they did do that. But I think a lot of this came before, like, I guess because you had such exposure within your PR roles, the idea of influences influencing, I think through you was the first time I discovered one Nigerian boy. Oh yes. But these guys were like now when we look at like, but I think your exposure in the PR roles and then, you know, we'll talk about you going from like the work you've done again, Boohoo, no one knows that, but going from River Island, you were, I guess, a team at Boohoo um, and broke Boohoo in a way. I guess the success of boohoo were, were there in the height of when boohoo came into everyone's consciousness, and then working with the UN on ethical fashion. Yes, yes. I mean,
0: with the boohoo side of things, it was it was very, quite simple. My company, African Creative Collective, had kind of failed. I should say it didn't. It didn't take as much. I didn't get the patronage that you know I was getting when I was doing stuff for free. When it came to start asking people to pay, that's when the story can't get key, like, as we say. <laughs> so I was literally running out of funds. And I'm not the best business person. I'm not ashamed to admit that. But what I do have is loads of ideas. And, like, one of my best, hardest to, like, implement them where I can? And I remember African Creative Collective, I was like, I can't do this anymore because, I mean, we'd come back from Pituumo, we'd bio, bio buy all this great stuff in Italia. and he'd gone off and he'd done a lot of stuff for himself, um, you know. And... Um, One Nigerian boy, Terrence, was, of course, settled in in the UK now. He started becoming editor of a magazine called Paul's Magazine. And initially, he was working with me uh, on my little agency. Couldn't pay him much, of course. And so basically, the team of people around me started crumbling without that day job money, really. And uh, everyone had to eat, but I couldn't afford. So I took the job at BooHoo because I met the owner of BooHoo when I was head of PR at River Island, he literally came up to me at some event and he went, black and brown will stick together. (laughs) The thing about the CEO of Boohoo, Mahmoud Kamani, he's one of my crazy favorite people. He was very, you know, this people started from a market store. He was a hustler. And I just love that whole hustler mentality. I don't know if it's a thing that, you know, African people recognize other people and you get excited about it because he could pull ice to me on a snow day. Like mm. that's how so I remember going to work with him and the first thing he said to me was like they ain't got no big budgets. Like they're on island, they're not gonna have that celebrity money, you know. <laughs> and so that was a shock to me, but we had to start thinking differently. And then I worked with this amazing girl called Roxanne, not Roxanne Najad, Rox. She's the smartest person I know. I always say this uh, about her because coming over to Boohoo, I started working with people who were interested in SEO and analysing data. This girl came from a record company slash festival background. She could tell you, if you did this, that, that with this person, you would get this, that, that over this period of time. Like, I wasn't thinking like that when I first came, you know. And coming off a of River Island, I was gassed. Man was gassed. Yeah. <laughs> it was just like very much gassed, you know who I am type thing, darling. Yes. You know how it goes. So I've done enough work. Darling, <laughs> do you know who I am? <laughs> I think. I was yeah. back. So coming over to Boohoo and company kind of failing, I had to humble myself real quick. And that was before. Um, and I had like loads of my, my friends, you know, telling me that, you know, this is, you didn't fail. It's just a little stopped up. You can do something else again. Da, 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 da. But, you know, uh, I believe you want to see it. But before I went to Boohoo, I'd gone to a friend of mine with this glamour girl in Nigeria, very famous glamour girl at the time called Sarah Alfini. Well, her older sister was my friend, but she was, like a, like glamour girl and i thought why can't these nigerian glamour girls be like jordan Afterward, Jordan, okay we're gonna we're gonna make you a calendar so i literally went to nigeria with her and with kelechi amadi will be shot this calendar that just kind of broke the internet in, in Africa and to me it was like a no-brainer we have like playboy who have got fhm all these lag mags that business in the uk so it's like let's go do that type of thing and for me it was another way to Explore another angle of my creativity, and of course, celebrating the Black female form. I remember us going to the market, shooting in, in, in the market in in Antony Village. They want to flog us. <laughs> We're begging them <laughs> like a local gym, and she's there in her swimwear. All these guys, I'm thinking, Lord help us, let them not, not nothing yeah. to us. But that calendar kind of broke the internet in, in um in Nigeria, and also paved the way for you know the glamour industry as you as you as you see it now. And, um, it's kind of funny when I look back at the pictures now they're a bit naff but a few of them like, <laughs> at the time, you know a few of them like, oh, but whatever and I remember coming to Boohoo I'd come I'd been a bit more humbled by the time I got to Boohoo because you know like the company by the time I got there
1: life happens you had you had a failed business under your belt yeah like life sure does happen it happens really fast and uh I remember going to Boohoo and going up
0: to Manchester, having to go up to Manchester three or four days a week. That also changed my mindset. Like, you know, because you're coming from London, you have this mentality, like you know it all. And I realised like my best interns and the best people I've worked with in the UK also as well, they're not necessarily from London. They're from all over. And I love the people in Manchester because they had the same hustle mentality as me. Mm. Polite what they knew what they were talking about. So working with these analysts and stuff, it made me realize the power of the influencer really, you know?
1: Yeah. And then that takes you into, are you writing for Cosmo at this time as well? Yes. So you're writing on the side for Cosmo as a, a, I think you were one of the first columnists to start talking about black beauty.
0: Yeah, the first black beauty. Yeah, because the editor at the time, Louis Court, who I knew through my job at at River Island. To be fair, I always gave them licks, you know, with the hair when I yeah. was at River Island, and kind of still do when we got mm. them. Um, she just said, "Would you, would you, would you mind?" It was one of those really funny phone calls where you get like, you know, people are trying to be politically correct and trying not to, yeah. to, you. But she ended up going. So, would, would you mind, like, you know, you always have got nice hair. And would you mind like doing a thing for, for a website? Yeah.
1: And at this time, to be fair, this is pre wig life and all these things that we're seeing. I mean, all that our look, not, like our hair was bad. Like if, if you didn't know what you were doing and didn't have one good Jamaican hairdresser tucked up in a side street. Oh, somewhere,
0: you uh, Exactly. The
1: average, the, the average, average standard of hairstyles were and, and makeup or even a consciousness of beauty routines was pretty poor. Yeah. I mean, thankfully, at that time, we had Mac already. And I yes. tried myself
0: with the face that Mac built. But I remember getting tested <laughs> from all these companies, you know. The fact that I worked at Cosmo. I get, like, stuff from Nibia. But it said, like, skin lightening. I'm like, this is the bleaching cream I beg for. So I had to <laughs> yeah. write about stuff, you know. And also, at that time, I'd also shaved off my hair at this point. Because I, I I'm, you know, it was chopping. But also, I got ill. And I just thought, let me just take the hair off and dye it blonde. So it was more of the makeup stuff. I was getting makeup from my friend, Kay Flawless, had just got herself the uh, Iman campaign in Europe. Uh, so Kay, you should send me some lipstick. And then Iman was about the only one and Mac yeah, that. Yeah,
1: my first ever makeup counter experience was Iman. Yeah, but that clay, that
0: that of- is everybody's skin color now, but we'll all be like, yeah, because it's Iman, try to use this clay. make Ah, me laugh you. by force, so. Clay, clay, not you? Be, by force. <laughs> You have to sweat first, then the color will adjust. adjust. I don't know, what kind of thing is this? You know, at that time, you don't even dare hug nobody. But anyway, <laughs> I started writing for, for Cosmo. But here's the thing. I'd write the article, and I had to send it to somebody who was white, and she would edit it. And I used to go back and say, but you don't understand. You can't edit what I'm writing because I'm writing about it for me. I'm talking about the Afro hair industry, and you want to edit it. When last did you get your hair done? You know? So Cosmos arrangement kind of was good for like six months. And after that, they were not talking about paying. And I was, of course, not going to continue to do this. for Yeah, because
1: at the time there was, to them, there was no black black beauty. Yeah, but I don't it think really really like,
0: yeah, I don't think they saw like the future of it, which many people didn't actually see. And kudos to this generation, you know, and, and the millennials and the, and the ones who are just a little bit older, what they've done with the hair industry, like you know what to do with your hair. You won't have no patches like I do now from the times when I didn't know what to do to my hair, when Brundi- when Bonding
1: Blue was bae. Like, seriously. And then Boohoo, again, I'm, I'm trying to walk everyone through through your career in, in the short space of time that we have. But if anyone's drawing a timeline, I think the one thing that's consistent with your career is everything you touch pretty much becomes gold. So you go from that to online fashion retail um this is at the beginning of online retailing and you're with n brown again this is jd williams simply be if anyone's in the uk these are the pioneers of online online retail
0: yeah i mean for boohoo it was such a great experience like i was head of communications globally so what that means was that i was having meetings with australia going over to make sure events were happening there i was having meetings with you know, the rest of Europe, because they all had press offices and I had to oversee and build a strategy that would work with local nuances there. And um, it was a lot easier, it was a lot harder in that there were budget constraints. So there I learned how to literally make something out of nothing, really. And I think credit to Woohoo is they didn't want to pay celebrity, they didn't see the power and need celebrity like that. What we started doing was targeting influencers. So I had to build this framework with this girl called Rox, Roxanne Nijad. And the framework basically was what allowed us to work with influencers. And I think when I just left Boohoo's when I saw you again after a long time at some luxury African, African thing, and I had to come up with this template for working with African influencers because I was convinced that as far, as far as Google sells to Africa, they need to be talking to tools. Who's got 2.5 million followers and stuff like that. At the time, no one kind of, like, really got what I was trying to say. But I was ship, I was selling in African, like, uh, influencers, you know, to different brands. Again, ahead of your time. <laughs> Somebody's got to do it, but, yes.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <ahead of> <laughs> again, time. again, 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 yeah.
0: And I think about it sometimes, again, it's where the frustration sets in. You're like, okay, maybe if I just held on a little bit more, but you know. But
1: it's almost like you're the moss that you have this, you know, you're this rolling stone with the moss, right? That just keeps gathering as, as you move along. Or gathering um, new moss. <laughs> I don't think everything you've talked about is no moss. Um, I think one thing that's clear with every guest is I think each guest is just way too humble. I wonder who the guests I'll have um, that will break that cycle, but I, I, I sincerely <laughs> doubt it. Cause I think in the midst of doing um, it's easy to, to, to kind of not see the bigger picture two decades in the fashion industry is not beans and doing it in the way that you have being at seminal and pivotal roles of shifting a whole not just even African fashion culture but global fashion culture I think is incredible I think even with River Island you were the first one to kind of create the magazine culture for a retailing brand
0: yes as their fashion
1: yes. editor um yes. again that's something we see now where, you know, it's almost commonplace, right? Every yeah. retailer has some sort yeah. of an e-zine that we get emailed with with looks or even working with influencers. That wasn't even something, again, now we know of them and we know their earning potential. Or even just, you know, Rachel Zosho highlighting what being a stylist is. And for anyone who, who doesn't know about these industries or who is not plugged into the fashion scene, you know, a lot of these were things that happen in culture but not knowing the person behind. And for me, having you on the show is an incredible honor because I think a lot of people don't know your story and don't know the incredible work you've done over the last two decades. purely out of just a love and a passion for fashion and you continue to do so with your consulting work and I guess you know it's almost like the African scene has a love-hate relationship with you and you have a love-hate relationship. (laughs) Say that again yes. But you continue to give of yourself and your services to continue to foster the homegrown talent. I think moving forward you've You're now podcast, um, Diary of a Brown PR Girl. Yeah. Where you're sharing a lot of of these experiences, Um, active on social media, sharing a lot of your experiences and still consulting for young brands who are trying to figure their way out of of the industry. The
0: truth is, I, I don't know everything. And I think I just want to learn and I just try to keep on learning. I mean, Steve Jobs said you have to stay humble and stay stupid. You spend half an hour with me, you probably think it's just the same person. Why is she asking so many questions? Is she daft? No, I, I just want to know and I'm just interested in knowing. And I think it's also a thing whereby, you know, you sometimes struggle so hard to try and be in a third culture African. You, you struggle so hard sometimes to be placed somewhere only to not feel the love that you feel like you're giving it. You
1: know, I resonate with that a lot. And I think. Even with Malay, right, when I started, I had these huge visions of my people being my customers. And we've waited for this for so long. There's no one breaking the barriers and doing things to this level. Surely we all will band together and and start to move, move this conversation forward. And sometimes you realize that actually you need the consciousness to understand the gravity of some of these actions. And to be fair, I am blessed with a ecosystem and community of friends like you and a whole bunch of other people who, who have always done great things, who have always been super supportive. But sometimes you wish the gong sounded louder.
0: I'm so jealous of, I can't, I can't even lie, of the younger generation. I feel like they understand what collaborative. They understand what it is to celebrate one another, you know. I was in Ghana last year with my friend's sister, Bubu, I am Siegel, who is one of who was a, one of the assistants when I used to do the show and she has an amazing brand. She's, she basically lived the African nomad life, which I've tried to live. She does it now, she's in Uganda, sourcing fabric. she's here and everywhere. I remember talking to her and looking at her and thinking, shoot me, girl, you, you, you're doing this thing, you're doing it, like, I only tried to do it, but you're actually doing it. Doing it, yeah, yeah. Wow, 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 wow. if I have this opportunity again, I know what I would do because of something I may have done, but you've continued it and you've taken it somewhere else.
1: But again, I feel like when you were doing the stuff that you were doing in fashion, no one had done it. Um, And I think the generation that's come after... Has really built a lot on the foundations of the work that you've done.
0: It's the same for you. It's the same thing like you when you started today. You
1: went stopping stopping flipping Harrods. Like, who, who's done that since? But everybody, yeah, Harvey Nichols. I, I don't think anyone's done it since. Yeah, I, I launched before Rihanna, <laughs> yeah, but this is what I'm trying to say. It's like at the time, so sometimes you, you understand
0: what I'm trying to say that when you, yeah, I like do, pre you did it, you did it something and you just. Held the door open, and everyone is running through it now. It's kind of like no one. Sometimes you feel like no one's looking back to say, "Hey," but at least this person, you know, held the door open. You well,
1: know. I'm hoping that's what we're doing with 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 third culture Africans. Really, is highlighting the people who have actually done the work in the way that has shifted the needle on our culture. You know, and I think what I found to be consistent is a lot of a lot of the people who have done that. Include myself, I think, don't come from the social media toot your own horn. We're not marketing geniuses, even though for some it might be their day job, but we're not personal brand marketers.
0: I know. Look at Eva, Nike, for example. I went to an exhibition of hers. Like, she's a product designer, yeah, but she had an exhibition at Paul Mall, like the Queen's Backyard. That's where we were. And I remember thinking, wow, I wonder if this girl really realised the impact
1: of just even
0: me just being there, how I felt to celebrate yeah. her look.
1: And I think that's with every guest on the show. And the same with you. I'm sure the fashion people or students of fashion listening to this episode will love hearing your journey and your story. And I guess what I'm trying to say is nowadays, I, I realize that, you know, we need platforms like this to be able to toot our own horns. It might not be in the way that is the new way, but it's a platform for us to do that and appreciate the work that we've put in, appreciate each other, and hopefully be a resource for someone out there who's looking for the inspiration, who's looking for a reference point. Who else has done this? To be fair, there's no other Arietta since you. I beg, there are people there. Who? Different. Who? They embody parts of you, but not all of what you've
0: done. It's so funny you say that because I remember when I found noticed in The Shift, I used to get featured in magazines a lot in the UK. I don't know if you remember.
1: Yes. You had um, lots of articles profiling you, yeah. your style, your yeah. opinions, <laughs> so your funny. everything. I I mean, sometimes I'll see someone, i say, I know how we're hey. just in one party.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I remember I was meant to be in this magazine, You Magazine. They were going to profile me and stuff. And um, it kind of didn't happen. And I bumped into a friend of mine who worked I was like, yo, ah, what's happening with this profile? She goes, Ari, we went to one girl that works at ASOS. Maybe you know her, Freddie Harrell.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's when you knew it was shifting for you. I I must say, when Malay got featured in you, I was beside myself. I don't think anyone understands. I I think there's certain magazines that you just think I'm never going to get there, and then when you get it, yeah, um, seriously, yeah, you were selling supplement. That was awesome. But I feel like there was a shift though, and that's the shift you're speaking about. I think you were the generation before influence, like to understand influencing. To convert. And the question is, were you so in in the scenes of the job that you didn't see the shift coming?
0: Definitely you will be, you know. And that's the thing, when, you, like, also as well, like, put it this way. I used to live in front of ASOS. And the day Freddie Harrell quit ASOS, I saw her. She was walking away. And I was like, wait, well, you're not going to work? She goes, no, I just quit. I'm going home. A week later, I saw her. She said, she's going to start her own company. I mean, Freddie Harrell now is like, you know, everywhere. But she, yeah, she's
1: done a landmark
0: uh, fundraise as well. Yeah, yeah. And she 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 with the bullet, we were still in the we were still following the flipping hamster wheel, going around, doing this, had to work, didn't take a time out to see. Actually, if I took my time to do X, Y, Z, this could work for me in this way. So I think I was too much in there. I think if anything, if I could do anything backwards also as well, I should remember that, you know, all the energy I put in working for somebody, I could use that energy to work for myself. Because after a while you get exhausted, you know and we don't burn like burnout but there's an element of you do feel a bit like
1: very much to creators work and i think for a long time within our culture we were taught that creativity or creating isn't considered work and it's pleasant to see the shift that we're seeing now with a lot of creatives showing careers and monetizing. And I think even when you were earning as a stylist, I don't think you had the confidence to even own that. Even though magazines were writing about you and profiling you and you had all the success you had, I think it was at a different time.
0: There was nobody. Like, who. which black stylist did I know owned their own consultancy? It, it just wasn't there. Even when I started my PR agency, African Creative Collective, I was one of the very few in the UK there was like not one or two in London and in Manchester but you know but who
1: had the experience though like who had the genuine experience that you had to do it but I do know
0: that a friend of mine Nini Granville she was always the other black girl I used to see at events and stuff like that um I think the benefit of her not Although we are the, the same, the, we're similar. We're not the same in that my similarity, our similarities ended that we were both black PR girls of Nigerian descent working in the UK. I had this added pressure, this invisible pressure from you know back home. You have to make money. You have to do this. You have to do that. Yeah. So that I the don't. Success really looked anything.
1: different then. Success was about what was financial. Yes,
0: success was fin- is purely financial. I'm pleased that Lily is one of my great friends till today. So we we we, all, we always talk about these. And I tell her about these external pressures that African kids, especially African women, especially firstborn African girls, you just carry on your back. It's like you're successful as long as you can feed X, Y, Z as well.
1: And I guess what we don't get taught is that actually, if you continue down the path that you're going to of passion, eventually the money will come. And I guess in general culture, I think there's an underestimation of the time it takes. Yeah, the time it actually takes to convert that. I'm conscious of your time, Arietta. Thank you so much for a great episode. I feel like I feel like we need a part two ah, um, of your episode because I I feel like I rushed through a lot of it. Yeah, because now, um,
0: when we talk about what I'm also doing now in Sweden, I'm doing a lot of cultural curating, and I'm trying to make this documentary. So by cultural curating, I'm trying to um, show people in in Europe. I'm trying to show them a, a, a different stereotypical view of what is creativity from the continent right now. You know, we take it for granted that everyone knows, no, you go to an event, everybody brings out a fucking djembe drum. Like who plays a djembe drum? I don't know. But, but I want to show them we've got contemporary ballet ballet dancers now. We've got artists, like, you know, we've got photographers who are shooting constantly for days and confused and stuff like that. And um, yeah, whenever you're ready for part two, let me
1: know. <laughs> yeah, and I guess to highlight the talent that's out there, again, testament to the work that you've done, I always say every guest, their work far extends just themselves and it's very purposeful work and you've shared some of that just now. Where does everyone get to find you on the World Wide Web, social media?
0: Oh, uh, yeah, my podcast, which is I've been late in updating, is called Hey, What Do I Know? I Don't Know Everything, but This Much I Fucking Do. my my, uh instagram is at Arietta who a-r-i-e-t-a-w-h-o like who are you Uh, i'm not so active on twitter anymore because i can't type i prefer the visuals but it's at Arietta who as well and yeah arieta fashionista gmail.com just hit me up i would love to chat Chuck Breeze
1: Fabulous Thank you so much
0: for, Thank for, you for, for having me on, on this third culture African situation and Malay and everything People <laughs> need you. to know that you yourself this ain't no joke this ain't the first rodeo you've been on you've been doing this for <laughs> time people need to know that I've yourself. been trying to <laughs> thank you
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Third Culture Africans, the lifestyle podcast. We would love to hear from you. So please find us on Facebook or Instagram at Third Culture Africans and leave us a comment. A review goes a long way in getting our show notice. So please leave us one if you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time.